hello, episode two of C. I, I've started saying season. I've given in to the um, American <laughs> cultural colonialism that says season. Wait, what were what were they before series? In in Britain, uh, yeah. in good Great Britain, uh, we say series. <laughs> but unfortunately, um, in a post Netflix world, uh, season has won out, and now everyone just says season. I think now. I I never <laughs> realized that. Like a series is. In America, series is the whole thing. Yeah. Like there's five seasons in this series, you know, mm. or four seasons in this <laughs> series. But until uh, recently, yeah. we, were, we were saying series and television <laughs> show. Um, but yeah, I think I'm, I'll be like one of those. Yeah, I'm like uh, sort of <laughs> some sort of like obscure civilization that's still saying um, series in 2023. I like that that's what you hold on to. You're like, in my day. <laughs> words meant something yeah that that hasn't come up in like this sort of um it's conference season no political party is tackling the big topic (laughs) of keeping it as series tv series yeah let's not lose our british vocabulary pretty soon (laughs) it's gonna be a sidewalk yeah yeah you'd think you'd think they'd sort of um push that stuff more anyway yeah uh episode two of season slash series four yeah. Course Andy. Yeah, uh, we had Chaparak on. Uh, she's absolutely amazing. Uh, she is a stand-up comedian uh, here in the U of K. And uh, she is uh, Iranian, and her parents are Iranian. And we bring that up because at the very we end... Give, we didn't give any context to her. Because this is the thing about podcasts. We know Chaparak. So we just go, oh, yeah, when when the Iranian government tried to kill your dad because we know that already. But actually, that's that's quite a big, big story. Yeah. yeah. And, and we're just like nodding along like, yes, we know, we're aware. And then when we logged on today, we were like, oh, people might not, our, all of our listeners might not know that about <laughs> Chappie. Her father was Hadi Khorsandi, who was a poet who wrote poems about the Iranian government. And um, they didn't like those poems. And uh, he had to flee to the UK. That's yeah. what his background. Yeah. It's an incredible uh, story. He's an incredible, incredibly brave man. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, well, watch, uh, a- after you listen to this uh, interview with her, uh, you should look up her stuff. Of course, buy her book. She has a book. Guys, she has a book called Scatterbrain, out now. Uh, how I finally got off the ADHD roller coaster and became an owner of a very tidy sock door drawer. <laughs> and um, I will say, listen to the end of the episode because we have two, two hardback books to give away uh, to our lovely listeners. And we will explain how to do that at the end of the episode. So then Joe and I can pause this record and decide how we are going to be giving those <laughs> books away because we haven't decided yet. It's brilliant, though. I lo- I'm loving the book so much. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, so e- it's a proper easy read, but also it feels like there's sort of new ideas about neurodivergence in there. Mm-hmm. So we're in a funny book, but there's sort of stuff, um, there's, there's language which I feel like is going to enter our, our neurodivergent lexicons. Ah. Uh. I can't wait to finish it. I've only read the the uh, introduction uh, or chapter, chapter one. She tricked me. <laughs> uh, 
so far, but it is uh, it is lovely, and this interview is lovely. I will say there is a, a maybe a bit of a trigger warning at the end. Uh, do we have to put a trigger warning? I feel like we should. Uh, she does talk about um, a family member being killed, and I don't know. I just feel like we should mention that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Into this. The, um, the, the, yeah, I mean the, the the episode was a was an emotional one. There was lots of sort of. Um, and then that that was yes we should put I, yeah i think at one point she actually got a little teary-eyed and so did i this will be our first this is how we know we're getting good at podcasting when our guests come oh. on and start crying that's, <laughs> and we start crying too yeah. <laughs> yeah that's where the virility is uh yeah we're 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 the new oprahs of the podcast <laughs> world um but yeah have a listen uh we talked a lot about education and the educational system that uh Chaparac grew up in and uh seeing how it's different for her kids now and yeah i think it i think it's a really good one it is here she is all right we're we're we're, we're recording now <laughs> Let's try and make it natural, but it, uh, there's always an awkwardness when we start. Yes, we start. I've started to talk in a different kind of voice altogether. <laughs> <laughs> radio voice. Welcome to Radio Four. <laughs> the thing about ADHD is that you know it does make one truly consider <laughs> one's life. <laughs> um, in some ways, you could say. I feel reborn. I'm loving your book. Can we sort of talk about the book first? Or yeah. Should we jump straight in with it? No, it's, but... it's brilliant. I, I only, I, I got it uh, four days ago and I've already read half of it and it's, it's brilliant. Um, it feels like it comes from a really like um, honest, but also very like neuropositive place. Is, is that like, it, it, it's sort of all about not changing yourself and sort of, it comes from a sort of social model where, where did a lot of people I know who are sort of newly diagnosed with ADHD? Sorry, this is a very long question. I'm starting with. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of people who are newly diagnosed sort of um, go through a process where they can sort of struggle with that stuff, but it feels like it's coming in straight with a very sort of positive, like um, you are who you are, and it's environment that can be disabling and those sorts of ideas. Where, where did you, where did, where did those ideas come from? I guess. Well, I I wrote the book when I was really ready and I got my diagnosis at a point where it was really like in the words of the great um Izzard no shit Sherlock (laughs) I just went with Izzard just then did you notice because my brain went a bit fuzzy um (laughs) Susie Izzard anyway the point is you know the quote and it was um quite a number of years ago now when I didn't know I had ADHD but in terms of work I finally went, I cannot work the way other comics work. I cannot start my Edinburgh show in January, go to a cafe every day. I can't do that. I have to stop trying to do that. I will never write a sitcom. I'm going to stop. You know, all of those things that um, I felt I'm going to do this and in the same way as at school I'd go and I'm going to get up on Saturday morning and I'm going to write my history essay and that's <laughs> going to happen and it's like well 
love, your methods have never worked. So it was about 10 years ago that I just took myself, just gave myself a break and said, you work to your method. And your methods are doing your homework on the bus, writing your Edinburgh show, you know, hopefully by July. And um, you will be okay writing as part of a writing team, but um, you can't go through the whole rigmarole of writing a sitcom. That's not you. You don't have the concentration span. And really thinking about when I was 10 and what were my ambitions when I was 10 and thinking, what did I feel my ambitions should be now that I'm in this industry? And there are certain things I cannot do. And um, that was very liberating, deciding to stop trying. What, uh, what were some of your ambitions when you were 10 that you now have let go of? Oh, none. Okay. <laughs> My ambitions when I was 10 was to be a stand-up comic and to write books. And I'm check, doing check. Yeah. You know, my, my ambition when I was 10 was, was never to, um, you know, write a film or a sitcom. It was to write a play. So I'm writing a play. Um, but really thinking of what made me happy when I was 10 is the same things that make me happy now. So when I was 10, I would find some old bit of junk that someone had left in the garden. So I lived in this, um, this quite a beautifully ramshackle house divided into six flats when I was a kid and it had a really transient sort of population and no one had like changed the carpets or done the garden for about 70 years and people were always dumping their stuff in the garden and doing midnight flits and stuff and I would find bits of wood in the garden and I would just go and paint them or I would just go and like find some sandpaper and just do some nonsense with my hands my um just my nonsense upcycling that my parents would go oh how lovely Shappy a plank of wood that you draw on <laughs> I love that plank of wood I think I've written about that plank of wood in the book I'm not sure and this pear tree that I used to climb that was my happy place and I used to read books not just because they were edifying <laughs> now I got to a point in my life I was like I've got to read to become more clever and it's like absolute bollocks you read because you're really enjoying getting out of your head and reading for me was self-medicating ADHD actually when mm-hmm. I was and I didn't recognize that at the time and I do recognize it now and since I've stopped trying to work like everything everyone else seemed to be being as industrious as I felt like I ought to be um since I've been more myself nothing bad's happened you know the sky hasn't fallen on my head I haven't lost my house you know, there's still dinner on the table. Um, so there was just so much anxiety about how I should be working and what I should be achieving. And I just feel this reconnection with 10-year-old me, which is partly because of healing after ADHD diagnosis, but I have no doubt it also comes with midlife. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a sweet freedom even this afternoon, like going for a coffee with my neighbours, I would have been like, oh, well, that'll take at least an hour and a half. And that hour and a half, I can write an article about some bollocks that I want to read about. But I didn't. I went and spent time with my friends, which 
seems like a really obvious thing to do, but there are very obvious things I denied myself for a long time in my quest to make up for lost time because I felt like I'm, I lost a lot of time by being a bit of a space cadet and not doing as well as I could have done at school and all of that sort of stuff. That's such a beautiful, yeah, beautiful sort of mindset to get back to. So 10 is like just before you go to secondary school. Is that when the sort of like, is that when the, the shame comes in? Yeah, secondary school is when everything unraveled, everything unraveled. Because um, you go from, I went from being with the same bunch of people I'd been with since I was five. There was no school uniform at my primary school. And so everybody was accepted. Like, there was the fashionable girls. There was the girls like me that wore their older brother's hand-me-downs. There was, you know, we all wore the same things every day. So there was no formal uniform, but we all had our own uniform. And that was really accepted. And that's the first thing that happened when I went to secondary school. We had to have this itchy, scratchy, horrible uniform that I wouldn't allow on my bed. I couldn't, the minute I got home from school, I'd take it off. I couldn't bear the uniform. And now I'm sort of learning a lot more about ADHD and the way you react to fabrics and feeling comfortable. And also, um, weirdly, the whole idea of uniform is to make everything uniform, but it was also really clear the ones that had money for the uh, nicer black shoes for school and the ones like me who had the ones, the same black shoes as they had the year before that had like a little hole in them now in the sole. So I had to like shuffle down the corridor. Um, so no one would see the hole in my shoe because this was the eighties and um, not having money was absolutely um heat shame on you we didn't have footballers like Raheem Sterling and all those guys um, who stood up for kids that were on free school meals and so despite the fact that I went to a comprehensive school a secondary school where lots of people are on free school meals and lots of people grew up in council houses um, on top of my learning issues I had to hide the fact that um, I was a free school meal kid um, and the fact that, you know, we didn't have, uh, you know, we were wealthy in many ways, but just not in money. Like my dad's a poet. So, you know, and I was ambitious. I did not want to be one of the naughty kids. I didn't want to be one of the ones who didn't care about their studies. All my friends were the ones in the top tier study groups but I was in the lower or middle tier study groups so I put on a really posh accent at school because that would make me in a position to mask the fact that I wasn't keeping up with the schoolwork to the teachers without being put in the learning support group because the learning support group was the group that no one even picked on because they felt so sorry for them like there was such a taboo in having being in the LS class and oh it was just really tough because I was so good at English so good at French failed everything else couldn't keep up with anything else and it makes me really sad because um I, I loved history but I couldn't keep up with the homework mm -hmm. 
and I couldn't say to a teacher. And the teachers had a lot on their plates with kids that had, you know, there were kids at my school that, that would come in on a Monday morning just baying for blood because they'd had such a crap time at home on the weekend. So I'm not blaming my teachers. It was the times they lived in and there were kids with social problems that far exceeded my, you know, much less obvious needs. But I got four GCSEs and um, for a kid of my ability, getting four GCSEs is a real shame. But they were two A's and two B's. It's not like I scraped four C's. Mm. I got four really good grades and the rest were D's and E's and F's. Just uh, uh, for my American brain, um, is there an average of how many GCSEs one should get? Like, is it there like a, this is if you're doing really well, this is if you're doing mi- middle, and this is if you're doing not so well? Yeah, it's nine. 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 Yeah. Um, so... Or it might be eight, actually. My my son's doing nine because he's doing maths and further maths. So that counts as two. But at my school, you could do maths. Uh, and then you could also do Latin if you were in the higher bands. So my friend, who was one of the, you know, the cleverest, I think she got, I think it was nine was maximum. Or what was it? Eleven. I'm not sure. But eight was the normal, I think. Okay. Eight was the normal. And, um, and I got four. And you needed five, really, to do A-levels. So I had to take a year out. Because it's sorry, sorry. Just to make sure I understand, a GCSE it's like a standardized test, right? Yeah. So you do your GCSEs at sixteen, mm-hmm. and you do them across the board of subjects, right? So you right. have to do English, you have to do maths. You can take all three sciences, and that counts as three. Or you can do combined science, which counts as two, or very combined science which counts as one GCSE. And I wouldn't do very combined science because that's where all the really scary kids would be in the class. So that's how I would choose. Not what, what do I enjoy? What am I capable of? Who, who, where am I going to get less bullied? <laughs> where am I going to feel more comfortable? And the, the, one of the really sad things is that um, woodwork uh, was a possibility. I did a carpentry course recently. I really loved woodwork. I really wanted to do woodwork, but I was a girl and everyone else was a boy and boys terrified me. So I didn't do woodwork, but I would have done really well in woodwork and I would have got a lot of uh, confidence because I was good at it. Mm-hmm. Even though there was a lot of measuring and a lot of maths, there was it was the atmosphere of a woodwork class, just people physically doing something with their hands was so soothing that I felt confident to ask for help with the measuring. Yeah. In a way I wasn't in my maths class. And what I realize now, now that I've learned so much about myself, physically doing stuff with my hands is critical to my mental well-being and my sense of um, feeling at one with my myself and my mind, body and spirit, you know. Um, so I do, I do do my bullshit upcycling that will never sell in a secondhand shop but gives me a lot of a lot of pleasure <laughs> i think we I, I think as like creatives and like in this day and age where anyone can set up an etsy shop we really need to celebrate doing stuff that we love 
that we don't turn around and sell. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like if you really like upcycling and, and making things, or if you like, like making jam, it doesn't mean you have to then sell your jam to people. Just enjoy making jam. Just enjoy carpentry. <laughs> you don't need to write a friend show about making jam. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't, and you don't have to sell it. Like I, I burnt myself. I got really into cooking over lockdown and then i decided to turn it into a youtube channel and it burned me out it was like the worst thing i could have done for my hobby because then i was like look at me being a comedian making a thing and then it's like i don't want to make banana bread anymore now there's the task of entertaining yeah someone said to me why didn't you do an instagram post about your upcycling and i'm like i'm not tracy solomon you yeah. know she that brilliantly that's not that, I'm not doing it to be looked at doing it and I think that that's something I'm very very conscious of now about um the joy in what I do and I even though I still love stand-up I I don't need it the way I did before because I'm much um more accepting of myself I don't need that uh adrenaline fix of being the cool kid in the playground anymore um and so it's actually meant that my stand-up's better because I work harder on it rather than use it like a drug yeah. I actually calling but I've been doing stand-up for so long I've only just started to transcribe shows mm -hmm. I haven't I've recorded, <laughs> but I will give them to someone else to transcribe. But just even thinking about things like that or mining a routine for more rather than that worked, on with the next, that worked, on with the next. So just being creative like that has taken me a long time to get to. But um, I try very hard not to mourn what could have been and just be really happy and present in what is happening now now can I ask you two something so you two I reckon are at least 10 years younger than me right so do you mind if I ask when you guys were um diagnosed like at what stage in your life do you want to go first or should I uh, so you, mine's slightly complicated because I had like an informal diagnosis when I was a teenager um, which I didn't know about because it was sort of referred to in quite a euphemistic way. And I went, oh, yeah, why differently? That's something that my mum says. Um, and uh, so it wasn't until my late 20s when I had the, the formal diagnosis. Um, but I had all sorts of sort of other mental health diagnosis in, as a teenager. Mm. So similar, or uh, not not similar, actually. Uh, I got diagnosed, similar to you, Shabby, uh, I got diagnosed... Uh, around lockdown, my partner was doing a lot of research online and sussed out that uh, they're autistic and uh, sat, he sat that assessment. And then uh, Tom has also uh, sat the ADHD assessment and he's uh, autistic ADHD. And he turned to me and was like, I think you have ADHD. And I was like, of course not, because I have all of these ways of like 
combating these issues. And then I finally did the assessment, uh, I think in 2021, maybe, maybe end of 2020. Um, so yeah, fairly recently. So what I I'm, I'll be 38 next month. So around like 35, 36, so just a couple years now. So it's, it's still, it's still new to me as well. Mm. You know, I think a lot of what you're saying about school is very late. I went to Catholic school in the noughties, which was about 20 years behind. So I had similar, those, those <laughs> uniforms. Did you have to have your top button done up? That was a big thing. No, no. They, they really wanted people to have the top button up. Even leaving school, you had to walk home with your top button up and they stand by the entrance of the school to look for people with their top button up. That is not Well, well the thing we worked out we could life. do you is you can, I mean? and they can't get you for it, is you can put your hand like this as you're leaving and they go, do your top button up and you go, ah, oh, it, is, it is done up. Um, <laughs> and if you do that enough times, you sort of like build up like doubt in the teacher's minds. <laughs> so you're just learning to play this weird manipulative game. <laughs> Yeah, because we're done it wrong. It's not against the rules to put your hand there and cover yeah. your top button, um, and then your top button is done up. Um, that was our, our game that we played. I've long thought I wasn't raised with a religion, but what I see in friends who were raised in a religious sphere, it really does teach them to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I just tell the priest about the the, um, the button thing. Yeah. <laughs> To, to get away with stuff and to lie about stuff and to get round stuff. I mean, it's a useful tool. Um, it's very um, few times. I think whenever someone's talked about to me about the spiritual aspect of their religion and what it means to me is when they're way into their adulthood. <laughs> it's, yeah. never kids. Yeah, it's never kids. It's people going back to Catholicism. Yeah, yeah I don't think that's going to happen to me. I think I'm free. <laughs> Finally free. Oh, you talk a bit about sort of impulse lying in the book, mm. but then also not lying. I was quite interested in sort of, um, yeah, it's quite interested in that because you, you found difficulty. You sort of would lie so that you didn't have to lie, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, um, it, I think the lying was always a part of the masking. So I would binge eat as a kid or I'd eat secretly and I'd get a thrill out of like nicking biscuits out the biscuit tin at nursery school. So this is how old these memories are. And I'd get a little thrill and I'd eat something. And that risk of getting caught sort of carried on at school when I would nick things from people and then mysteriously put them back and uh, or be too scared to put them back and then feel with the terrible guilt and shame of what I'd done because stealing is against my values and against the values that I was raised with and it's only as an adult that I really understood how painful it is to go against your own values. I never really considered that before. And then when I was older, um, you know, I didn't steal, but I binge drank and I binge ate. And then that was the shaming risk that I took and behaved in ways when I did those things that brought a lot of shame. And, um, Sometimes, though, I get a bit frustrated with the the the, uh, the term ADHD because it's such a huge umbrella, and its prevalence uh, can be hereditary. Um, 
but it can be massively exacerbated. The symptoms can be exacerbated by trauma. And trauma means different things to different people, right? It could be something seismic, like losing a parent for someone, or it could be, um, you know, being screamed at by a parent, by somebody else repeatedly throughout your childhood, just as an example. And then in those sort of times, that fight or flight, when your brain is at its most um, malleable, I think it's under the age of five or something, and, and all the chemical stuff that happens in your brain and really learning that that also has a lot to do with ADHD. And so when I got diagnosed, um, I did start looking at my dad and, and I just went, you are riddled with it, mate. <laughs> and I spoke to him and I said, dad, you know, like when you came to our school plays and you fell asleep, it used to really hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. Now I understand that wasn't in your control. It was in a language that you didn't really understand. It was in a hall full of people you didn't know. And you would shut down. And I really understand that now. And how my dad is a fidget. And he's never been able to sit through a film without... Sorry, he didn't fall asleep in my school place. He used to have to fidget and walk out the hall a lot. Mm. And in, in, in the cinema, if we ever sat down to watch a film, he would fall asleep. And yet, as a writer, as a poet, he would hyper-focus and write through the night, through the night. And now I understand it. Whereas as a child, I thought he was really not interested in doing stuff with us. Um, But then I look at his childhood that was so riddled with trauma, proper, like grief. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I, I, I don't doubt that a lot of this is, you know, in our DNA um, and sort of learning about all that and thinking that if my children have ADHD, it doesn't actually mean that they might have the same battles as I did because mm. I'm really aware of that kind of stuff. And also their home life is so much calmer. And so academically, touch wood, they're both doing really well. Um, and it was when I had my kids and saw how they found school and academic learning a breeze where I thought, wait a minute, but they're my kids. So why did I find it so hard? And I had to really look at the difference between my childhood and their childhood, what I had to cope with, and also the times that I lived in, uh, the, um, what's the word, the taboos that they were around this sort of thing in the schools in my area, certainly, that we have now, because the parents are so much more aware and involved. I'm not saying it doesn't go on, but it's not like in my school where you literally got your head kicked in and you went home with, like, bruises that your parents went, what happened at school? Oh, got into a fight. Oh, what'd you get into a fight for? Anyway, what do you want for your tea? It was a very different generation. Like if my kids got into a fight, it would like our world would stop. Mm-hmm. We sorted it out, talked to the relevant parties, and you know. Whereas back then, it was kind of a little bit normal to come home with your blazer torn because someone had had a go at you in the corridor. It's really fucking horrible. The school I went to. Yeah. I had to my book. I had to go back for my school to my school. 
because I didn't want to do it a disservice because I know time's passed. And I know, I mean, they had the most incredible SEN department and the whole- Catch app- me up, what's an SEN department? Hold on, did I say it right? Special, Special educational ed- needs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the learning support, we would have called it. And they have kids there that have ADHD, they're autistic or whatever else. It's it, And they call it the goldfish bowl. So it's not hidden. It's right in the midst of everything. So if you have a learning support need, you do not hide. I don't, I don't even know where the learning support department was when I was at school. They just scuttled off somewhere. We only saw them at PE. <laughs> so it's very different now. They're very aware. And it's it, it was really necessary for me to not run down a school that is a very different place today and all the hard work that the teachers put into it. I got a formal apology from an old teacher of mine as well. It was amazing. I had a chance encounter with an old teacher of, of mine in a restaurant on the Isle of Wight. And he said, um, he said, do you, Shaparak, do you remember me? And I said his name. I remembered instantly. And then the next words out of my mouth were, that school fucked me up. And he said, I know. And he said, uh, would you like to have a cup of tea uh, in London? Because we met on the Isle of Wight. And I said, yes, please. And we met for a cup of tea. And he talked to me about other students that he'd taken back to the school to exercise some demons and to find some healing. Um, And he said to me, he looked me in the eye and he said, I have seen your work. I have heard you talk about your school days. And I would like to tell you that your failure failure at school didn't happen because your parents were foreign and couldn't navigate the system or you had ADHD. It was because we failed you. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was really, that was really quite a moment for me. He said, we failed you. And he said, that was, that was our loss. Oh God, I needed that. You know, it just, it really, Uh, anyone who thinks that apologies years later don't mean Jack, they really do. They really do. Um, Yeah, that meant a great... I remember, remember, yeah, I read that in the book. It must have been such a a hard thing to go, because I I was, (laughs) I I had a teacher who comes see my show sometimes and, and, um, drunkenly once uh invited me to deliver training to the school and it was never followed up um but i um uh i don't think i could go back to my old school i think i'd be i think i'd be too angry i think i wouldn't accept the apology which is very childish of me no, but, um, and and crucially i didn't go back to the school at that point because i actually ran past the school um in the ealing half marathon and i had not even been able to drive past it before then and as I ran past the marathon I remember just blowing a raspberry at it just it was this this institute of doom and so after I spoke to my teacher some time went by and I emailed the head of my school and she like she like she's first woman head teacher there and she invited me in and of course gates are locked now you can't just walk into schools and I went and 
went round the side and there's this guy there and I said can you help me get in and he said yes and he introduced himself to me and I said what do you do at the school he said I'm head of pastoral care <gasps> wow <laughs> I didn't know what that word meant <laughs> when I was at school we didn't have pastoral care there was no non-teacher you could go to or if there was it certainly wasn't available to me and just walked in and I met the the kids and the way they chatted to the teachers yeah very different place so I'm glad I went there I think it's yeah it was important to me together before I wrote the book but it was hard Joe it was really hard yeah yeah no I, sat, I think I would find it very um I sat in her office and cried can you imagine this poor head teacher <laughs> she's got this yeah, yeah. because she was a lot younger than me the head teacher and I was telling her what it was like and she was like wide-eyed like there's this woman this girl girl at my school that everyone just thumped when they walked past her mm. they just thumped her there she is thump it's really horrible to see every day yeah it's um you're right I, I watched the youth work until about two and a half years ago and it is is a lot better now but it's still it's just so hard being young isn't it I think that yeah. just being uh particularly being a teenager is just such a difficult time but you know to have all that sort of on top of it where there's no I think for for sort of um there's also for, you know obviously my my teachers and my my parents sort of generation were raised by people who lived for a war and uh, I think that impacted a lot of, of their sort of attitude to things, you know, where it was like, you know, my my grandmother was called out of school and told that her brother had been shot down on a plane and um, then go back to school. And I think that sort of like had an impact on um, everyone's sort of attitude to any sort of um, any tough time, really. It's like, well, you're not in a war, so get on with it. Yeah. 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 And that's why I, I really... I, I I see the some some of the negative attitudes towards like people who uh, are young and they talk about ADHD and they do in, you know Instagrams on them and I just think I've learned from those twenty year olds. Mm. I'm really delighted that they're able to verbalize things that I didn't have in my vernacular to verbalize. Mm-hmm. I didn't didn't have it. I didn't know what um masking meant I didn't know what um I can't think of a single other term now by the way um I didn't know what any of all that meant but they were describing absolutely how I felt and and social anxiety no one ever talked about everyone would go you're being paranoid you're so paranoid and Mm. now I realize yeah that that's anxiety I had a lot of anxiety so when somebody laughed at a party on the other side of the room, I'd be convinced they were laughing about me. And that might seem self-obsessed, but it's because I was in a place of pain. And um, there was no empathy towards that kind of thing back then because no one had a name for it. They just thought, oh my God, you know, you're drama queen, such a drama queen, all of that, where you're sort of crying because, you know, someone that you know hasn't said hello to you. Why are you crying? <laughs> Ignore me. Because it's, it's you. It's like that. It's like you've been smacked, and and that that's the bit that also comes from trauma. But it falls under the umbrella of ADHD because when we talk about the way your brain chemicals process things, right? But 
um yeah i get it it's it's really uh the school days were the big days where i had to really heal from i think that was one of the um things i, I, I this is a theory i have and i wonder what your thoughts are on this people talk about rsd so rejection rejection sensitive dysphoria um i think i've got that right so sort of being being particularly sort of hurt by rejection you know someone doesn't say hello to you because they don't see you um and i wonder how much of that is an inherent part of adhd and how much of that is the experience of being different and being rejected for you know whatever it was for different people you know being too noisy talking too much about one thing those sorts of things and that and uh, you know, in a sort of more progressive world would neurodivergent people have that rsd in in the same way well that's a really interesting um thought isn't it um so you know how people talk about I was the last to be picked in games. Mm-hmm. I, I was always the last to be p- picked in games, but that wasn't the thing that made me. That's not a trauma for me. I was mm. like, games. Why would anyone pick me? Um, and weirdly, both my kids are really sporty as well, which is another thing that I really because I run now, and I realised that I was sporty, but I just didn't. The sporty kids terrified me. And I can't do teens. That, that's my fear is that I'm going to have sporty children. I don't know what to do. Because no. <laughs> I, I hate sport. I hate going to, I, the idea of going to watch football or something, that terrifies me. Both my kids are mega sporty and it's really fascinating. I run. I will mm. not join the mum's football group because I know if a mum turns around and goes, Shappy, I'll go, she's dead to me. She's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't cope with, with someone having a go at me. That's why I'm a celebrity was really difficult. Because, like, you know, you do things in groups, and if you're not keeping up to speed, they go, come on, come on. Because they're <laughs> types, and they're competitive people, and competitive people are like kryptonite to me. Mm. You know, I, I like kind losers. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I like geeks, and I like nerds, and I like the ones that go, if you need that that badly, you have it. I'm going to sit here and make a daisy chain. Um, yeah. My children find that frustrating about me because they're like, going to get this, going to win this because they're sporty types, right? And they do. They do get them. They do win them. And I'm like, good luck to you, but I'm out. My daughter said to me, and brilliant, she's so brilliantly passive aggressive with me, <laughs> into Harry Potter. And she goes, mommy, I think that you would definitely be Hufflepuff. And I remember reading Harry Potter and thinking Hufflepuff is like where the sort of potato kids were. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm Hufflepuff. And because I think me and Cass are Ravenclaw or Gryffindor. I'm like, whatever, <laughs> love, whatever. Um, so for me, that rejection sensitivity is something that is so prevalent and it's it, it's always in the places that other people won't imagine I feel felt rejected like um now this memory is so old that I was in Iran when it happened so under the age of five my uncle was re- a very keen um filmmaker amateur filmmaker he was like uh, 16 and he spent all his money um pocket money or whatever he did for, for work at that age on uh cameras and I remember being in Iran and he gave my brother, who's a year and a half older than me, a really cool camera to play with when we all did a project together. And he gave my auntie Nadia, who's also only a year and a half older than me, 
um, one that worked and he gave me a broken hollowed out camera that didn't work. And I remember being what, three or four and feeling utterly destroyed because he thought I was an idiot. And I start crying, crying, crying. I remember sobbing. And they're going, oh, she's being a baby. Come on then, do mine. Oh gosh, you know, whatever. Because they thought I'm the baby. I'll only break the camera and I won't care. But I did care and I did notice and I wasn't an idiot. And they treated me like an idiot. And so I'm really sensitive about how little kids are treated. Mm -hmm. Such a warrior for like, if anyone speaks harshly, like the most tiny thing, like, oh, now, now, what if I say? I just think you're telling that kid off in front of people. Mm -hmm. only about taking an extra Malteser, but that kid's just gone, oh, shame. And I'm so sensitive, I'm probably oversensitive to that. When my daughter was about the same age, we painted my, my brother, my brother, in fact, I called him my brother is weird, my son's bedroom, uh, black and white stripes. I painted them black and white stripes and it looked really cool. And she came home from school and she looked at her brother's ceiling and the, the sob, the the agony rose in her and I knew exactly how she was feeling. She was feeling he's got the cool ceiling because he's the big brother. I haven't got stripy feet. And I absolutely knew. And I took her into her room and I sat her down and we had a cuddle. And I didn't tell her because my, uh, her au pair was with me and he, he said, I'm so cool. I have male au pair. Um, (laughs) to keep her. Um, (laughs) He said, I'm so glad you were there because if she had cried seeing a ceiling and showed envy or jealousy just with me, I would have told her off. And I was like, no, we don't tell off. We don't tell off little children for feelings ever. And so, you know, we talked about it and then she was all fine and she was happy about brothers. I mean, she might sit in a therapy session in you know, 15 years time talking about this fucking stripy ceiling. But it's stuff like that. Whereas if she wasn't invited, she wasn't invited to a friend's birthday party recently water off a duck's back she didn't care so I do think that that rejection sensitivity you just you don't you you can't name where it comes from in someone else they can Mm -hmm. notice it but you can't predict it is my point Mm. I've told so many parental glory stories haven't I (laughs) I'm so conscious of it I'm so conscious of connecting with them Mm. Things are just accepted, aren't there? That, that, that sort of like, I think sort of our parents' generation just did and actually can have an impact. Uh, a thread that I feel like I'm hearing through this conversation as we're talking about your childhood and uh, your experiences and the adults of your childhood into now you as adult, as someone who has found out they have ADHD and is raising children, is compassion. You have so much compassion for uh, the whole situation of which you've come from and ha- how'd you get there babes oh god right so it's- i feel like you've done a lot of work that a lot of us who maybe have later diagnosis have not done because i'm still very much blaming the school so how <laughs> I, well, you know right that's a big question and compassion is critical to get to it was critical to get to for me um and compassion start I realized starts with myself like I have 
I learned to have compassion for myself. I used to beat myself up over the fact that during my divorce, there were times when I was a, this, not the parent that I wanted to be for my boy. And I, he went through a lot, my son, and I had to come to terms with that. And rather than let it sink me into the ground, I had to find compassion for myself and to forgive myself. And then when that happens, you realize that you've got nothing left for, for any, anyone else. Like that's how you react to, to the world and, and to people. And I, it's hard. It's very hard because compassion is wrapped up in forgiveness and forgiveness is a, the harder path to take. Mm-hmm. Um, often with forgiveness, we think of it only really in religious terms. That's not the sort of forgiveness I'm talking about. I'm an atheist. I'm talking about where you really and truly trust that nothing was done deliberately to harm you. Um even if someone like threw a brick at you, that person, by the way, I've turned into exactly the per- sort of person that would get right on my wick. <laughs> I would get right on my wick, but it's so fucking hard to not make a situation more volatile by actively... Um, being angry back um I'll I'll tell you something really quickly I know we're wrapping up but god this is this is a bit too much to sort of compare to my puny little issues but so my 19 year old uncle so I would have been four years old was murdered he was shot in the back by an off-duty police officer when he was at a demonstration in the revolution uh in 1979 in Iran right so his death had has an ongoing impact on my family. And when this, um, his murderer was caught, my grandparents after, uh, under the law in Iran could either have him executed or accept blood money. And blood money is not like a life-changing amount of money. So that's not the reason people take it. It's a token and it's forgiveness. And they chose to do that. And that didn't ease my grand suffering, but her thinking, and when I spoke to her years later, she said, why, why, would, why would I want another, what good would it do me, another mother going through that? Now, when they went to court, she also told me that this guy's parents spat on the floor at them. So there was no sorry, there was like, it was fuck you still. But still my grandparents deployed that attitude and it's fucking hard. It's hard, but it remained with us as a family. And then all the other trauma we went through with my dad being a a writer, a a satirist, a dissident and uh, an attempt being made on his life um, by the Iranian government and then having, you know, all the different political fractions like, you know, hating him because they accused him of being a communist or this or that or whatever. He got a lot of hate whilst he, whilst he you know, um, 
stood for what he believed in and never once, never once have I seen my father angry at the people who were angry with him. I've met, he always tries to put his shoes in other people's feet. Well, because they've had this experience and of course they think that of me because they're so angry about the revolution happening and you have to be kind to them because they're in pain. When someone's shouting at you, they're in pain. And then I was going through my divorce and I was so angry with my ex-husband and my mum and dad were just constantly the brakes on that. You know, he's upset too, Shappy. His dreams have died too. You know, he's suffering too. He's showing it in a different way to you. And it it was so hard sometimes that they didn't join in with me. Mm-hmm. I was angry with my ex-husband. But looking back, it, they saved me. Um, because it was the fact that I was able to survive that period of time in my life. And I, I'm not being dramatic when I use that word. Is because my parents, my family would not say a bad word about my ex and they wouldn't join in with me when I did. And now, you know, we have Christmas together. As you saw the interruption in this podcast, he's picking my daughter up from school who's not his daughter, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really, um, it, it is work being compassionate. It's not you're compassionate because you're a nicer person than someone who is angry. That's not it at all. I'm not a nicer person than anyone I'm a dickhead a lot of the time um but it it's a ultimately more peaceful place to be I think wow thank you so much that was amazing thank you so much for doing the show um do you have a neurodivergent moment for us um, I mean your book is full of them but yeah. um, I have a, a fresh one for us now I'll I'll tell you a fresh one that happened very recently. Um, I have a a gig in Bewdley and my ex-boyfriend said, my parents live in Bewdley. They're saying, would you like to stay the night? And I said, I do, but I have to be in Ilkeston the next day. So I was trying to figure out what to do with my car because I hate driving. And he said, well, maybe I can come to Ilkeston with you. Um, What time are you coming back? Let's work this out. Not even Ilkeston, Ilkley boring logistically I won't bore you with that but what happened was he rang me back the next day and he went right I spent 45 minutes trying to figure out the logistics of this weekend where you've got to be in Bewdley one night and then um up north the next night and you're actually up north eight days after Bewdley (laughs) it's not that weekend it's an entirely different weekend and he goes and I went oh god I'm really sorry and he goes no it was it was sweetly nostalgic (laughs) 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 oh my god that's amazing sweetly nostalgic what a guy city i'm meant to be in on any given day (laughs) and i was like what there's no cure there's no cure for adhd no no but speaking of the fact that there is no cure uh shappy how do people find you and tell us about your book well my book is called scatterbrain it's out uh, in hardback and also on audio which um, a lot of people they actually find preferable. Um, it's mercifully short, and it is not a self-help book. It is a sort of, it's a very honest trundle into my life and looking back on my life now that I know I have ADHD. Not that I'm attributing every single thing I talk about directly to ADHD, but 
it is a look back with humor and compassion and um I wrote it because when I publicly said I had ADHD people asked me so many questions uh, and I felt that this book sort of answers a lot of the questions people ask me I was absolutely overwhelmed when I publicly said I was ADHD because oh man people just people made me cry sharing their own experiences with me particularly people my own age or people um who have children this is the thing I'd have to tell you I get so many parents contacting me saying you know my son my daughter's been diagnosed with ADHD and um this uh, this is what they were like at school and and they're 10 years old and um, and they write to me with such worry and I say the same thing to all of them the fact that they have parents who get it and aren't telling them to try harder and aren't telling them if you just, if you just focused as much in maths as you do in English, if you just, the fact that they have parents who get it means everything. Like you're fine. Your kid's fine. That's, that's all they need. That's so true. Isn't it? But yeah, the parents that are worrying are the ones that are doing so much better. Mm. Yeah. We all, it matters to us so much what our parents think of us. It's Dunning-Kruger, that's what it's called, isn't it? The thing where if you, if you is it Dunning-Kruger? Where like if, if, you, if you think you're not good enough, the people who aren't doing well think they're doing well. And I think that's probably true of parenting sometimes. If you're worrying about it, then um, you're probably doing, doing all right by worrying well, about it. You know what, There's, I'm, on that note, I went to see a brilliant child psychotherapist my daughter had this developed this tick when she was very young and I have a, a tick as well in my eyes. I blink a lot and it's, and I know that that's psychological. Um, but she got a really pronounced one after I broke up with the, this boyfriend that I had. And I contacted this child psychologist, psychiatrist, therapist, and he invited me to go and see him, but told me not to bring my daughter, which I thought was really weird because it was her that we were trying to help. Right. And he talked to, to me, he talked to me, about my stuff and about my issues around grief and loss. And that was it. I went home. My daughter's tick went. Wow. Wow. Because I I realised there was so much about grief and loss that I hadn't dealt with. And so, yeah, it was was pretty magical. And I'm going to tell you his name so you can say it. And he's got a brilliant book about um, this sort of thing. And as a parent, I have so many parents go, oh, my, my child's like this, my child's like that. And I'm like, well, what about you? What yeah. about you? <laughs> you, get, you get yourself on a healing journey and your kids will be all right, I think. I'm, I'm not qualified to say that. I've just read a few books. But I hope to be soon Yeah. when I get my psychotherapy um, education, which will be soon. Yeah. All right. Thank you we, so much for doing yeah, the show. Thank you. And everyone check out uh, Chaparak Corsandi's book, Scatterbrain, on audio or reedy version. Reedy it's version? Really brilliant. That's what I call it when you have to <laughs> Audio or reedy version. Okay. Hardback like reedy version. All right. Thank you it's so lovely, much. It's lovely, lovely to talk to you. And I love this podcast. And I'm so glad that we... Um, time to do it thank yeah, you yeah likewise thank you, thank you, thank you so, so much. much for coming on
that was that was Shappy Corsandy, everybody. She was brilliant. That that was yeah. There's some beautiful things to take away from that. Um. So hey, guys, like I said, you should all go buy her book, or or we have two to give away, and we will be doing a book club. And Joe and I are going to set a date for it and <laughs> actually do it on that date, and not four months later. We're gonna do it, Joe. I believe in us. We are. It should be a Christmas. We should do it around Christmas time, and then it'll be like a Christmas miracle. We've got. <laughs> I was I was more thinking like let's do it at the end of the month, but yeah, we could we could do it in <laughs> December. Uh, uh, but here's a question, Joe. Uh, these two books we have. How are how how do people enter to 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 have us send them a Shabarak Corsandi book called Scatter Brain? Uh, they're going to need to be patrons, aren't we? We're going to give them to our patrons. Yeah. They're the ones that support us. They helped us have new artwork, help us rent the studio. Let's just go into the patrons. Yeah, so thank you guys so much uh, for those of you who are on the Patreon. Um, if you're not, it's three quid a month. And like Joe said, uh, the money we make off the Patreon, we put right back into the podcast. So it helps us uh, get more artwork, uh, rent studios, um, all of that fun stuff. So we need to get uh, for less than a cup of coffee. We yes, we need to way. do stickers slash badges. Yeah, maybe that'll be our Christmas miracle. We get the badges. <laughs> That'd be fun to send out to our Patreons before Chris- as a Christmas gift. A Christmas present. Okay, let's get on that. Yeah. I'm, All uh, right, I need guys, to heard- the podcast, so that's what I'm going to procrastinate with this afternoon is making badges. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, uh, but if you join the Patreon, we'll put up a little... Uh, we'll put up a little post being like, who wants a book? And if you comment below, we'll put your names all in one of those. Uh, we'll put your names in a hat, <laughs> a virtual hat, and we'll we'll pull two names out. And those people, we will send you a book, Scatterbrain by Chaparat Corsandi. So, so should we uh, uh, we'll probably give it two weeks? Yeah. So, so the Friday episode, but by, by, by the time the next episode comes out. Um, we've drawn on that day. Sounds good. So you have two weeks to join join the raffle and uh, win a book. Win a book. We have two. We have two to give away. So please do that. And on that note, uh, Joe, let's do some neurodivergent moments. Yes, let's. Do you have one this week? Uh, yeah. Do we want to do ours first and then our our uh, read our? Let's do ours. I've got a huge stack for this new series that have been racking up, so I'm I'm going to get them out. All right. Okay. Um, My neurodivergent moment is uh, yesterday I went out with friends to a birthday party, and as I've explained to Joe, I am now wildly hungover. (laughs) So I woke up this morning and went, I need breakfast. Mm, Can't be standing up cooking anything or putting yogurt in a bowl that's too hard so i ordered mcdonald's breakfast no regrets and i've decided that we will continuing ordering on deliveroo until tomorrow because the thought of actually preparing something is just too hard today it's too hard is is this a full note of it or is this just you very hungover <laughs> well here's the thing this is it's like okay do I go down and make myself lunch 
or do I record a podcast with you? We have so much energy <laughs> today. We Thank have to pick choice. what's important. Uh, right. Yeah, I, I would say it's a hungover neurodivergence. Hmm. It's knowing that I have a lack of uh, ability and will today and partitioning it out <laughs> where I need it. Is that a thing where, like, sense? I have material about how I'm, like, more autistic when I'm drunk. Are you more ADHD when hungover? Yeah, I'd say right. so. I'm, a, I'm, a, uh, my executive dysfunctioning is highly dysfunctioning at <laughs> a hangover. Which I think you're right. I think that is with everyone. I'm not going to be like, if, because I have ADHD... I I have a hangover. It's like I have a hangover and it's making my dysfunction my executive dysfunction ten More times worse than it would normally be. Well, you have you have my sympathy with the hangover. Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me your sympathy because I did this to myself, so I deserve it. <laughs> I, I hope my sympathy it. makes you feel better. <laughs> so much so. Uh what about you, Joe? What's your neurodivergent moment? Mine, I think I've already t- told you about, but I will tell the listeners, uh, this is me not taking everything in. I did a corporate um, gig and uh, it went well. My, the one thing they said afterwards was um, you did the stuff about Hans Asperger and the Nazis in your set. Um, probably it's going to be shared internally. We probably might take that bit out because we're actually, it might be a bit awkward because we're actually a German bank. And, uh, and I said, oh, sorry, I, d- I didn't realise you're a German bank. And she said, we're called Deutsche Bank. <laughs> and I realise now that is that is that's German for German, isn't it? Yeah. I, I I just wasn't wasn't taking it all in. <laughs> so um, so yeah. They're so German that they're using the German word for ger- like for they're German. the most Germanist <laughs> bo- bank in the world. Yeah. They've named they've named themselves after the country of which they were founded in the language of that country. <laughs> and you're like, what? You're a German bank. I thought you were just a Deutsche Bank. <laughs> I thought you're saying Dutch strangely. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it was it was it was a fun little corporate. I was well, cool people. I'm I'm glad that it was a fun corporate and I hope you made a lot of Deutsch marks doing it. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's do some uh, listener listener neurodivergent moments. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Uh, you go first. Okay. Uh, this is from Bob in Manchester. And I will say he said, Joe, just so you know, some really sweet things about the podcast before he launches into his neurodivergent moment. Could have just read it in the time I've told you that, but I decided not We're to. Modest. Uh, yeah, we're modest, but thank you so much for writing in, Bob, and thank you for the very sweet, sweet words. So, this is from Bob. My neurodivergent moment that my family enjoy laughing about is when growing up, if I hear somebody described as being a good egg, I assumed it was because they had a good egg-shaped head. <laughs> like, in, like in an affectionate term that people had for a balding or short-haired man who had an egg-shaped head. Of course, being undiagnosed, I never challenged this odd phrase or its use until I was older and someone used it 
for someone who clearly had a very round face and head. (laughs) I was looked at strangely when I now know that I was challenging the good nature of a family friend. (laughs) I like it. You're you're not, you didn't challenge the phrase. You were just like, he's not a good egg. (laughs) Uh, After, after a particularly good deed it wasn't until my family uh i told it wasn't until i told my family of the faux pas many years later i realized my mistake and i just want to include this so uh just background i should have said this uh bob is uh autistic and he said an indie moment from my diagnosed son now. I took him to the doctor when he was vomiting for a day or two. Explaining his vomiting over the course of the last 48 hours to the doctor, she then asked him what his stools were like. I could see the puzzled look on his face as he contemplated why his seat (laughs) (laughs) would have affected his stomach. And he then and he then twigged when she mentioned it. Twigged. She then twigged when she mentioned it to him. Twinged? Twigged? Twigged, like cottoned on. Oh, is that what that means? Okay. Is this you I having could... a neurodivergent Yeah, this is, this is me not knowing that, that <laughs> work. You know what? You know what? That's like freaking series. I didn't know that was a, that. that's Twigged. how you use ah. that word. Uh, let me try that again. I could see the puzzled look on his face as he contemplated why his seat would have had an effect on his stomach. And then he twigged when she mentioned it to him that's it i just think that's fun that's very sweet just, yeah that's that's sweet oh <laughs> and you know what bob you and your son you're both good eggs <laughs> is there a picture to show to show there's no good egg? there's no photo but i i <laughs> I, I mean you're, you're imagining good... like a big cone shaped head <laughs> like uh, was that cone heads film like that Exactly, exactly. Uh, Joe, what uh, what neurodivergent moment have you? I have one. This is a almost like an agony aunt type moment. Um, we've talked before about the autistic ADHD being complementary neurotypes. We have another, like you, like you and Tom and like me and Danica, uh, autistic ADHD couple. We have um, Chris from the couple has... Chris has emailed in saying uh, that his neurodivergent moment is over the polite disagreement slash passive-aggressive argument that he's been having with his wife over the fan in their bedroom. He says, The fan has developed an intermittent noise when it oscillates. It's always on the same point of the oscillation, but not on every oscillation. This not-quite-regular-but-not-quite-irregular aspect is important to me. My wife is ADHD and has recently been diagnosed with reverse slope hearing loss. She loves a fan and can't see a problem with the noise. I am autistic, have good hearing, and have a problem with annoying noises. I'm not menopausal, my wife is. Whoa! Whoa! Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I I think this is a heat thing rather than... Okay, 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 Uh, okay. all right, (laughs) I'm back in it, I'm back in it. This isn't a she's been grumpy, this is a... um, Okay, I thought we uh, were reading an am I the asshole for a second. No, no, no. I th- that that was my f- when I first read this. I thought it's this. Uh, I-, I slightly hesitated at the menopausal stuff because I was worried yeah. that I was going to get myself cancelled. Yeah. I believe this. This is a conflicting access needs. In um, she is hot uh, and can't okay. hear the fan. Okay. Um, he uh, can hear the fan and doesn't have the 
need to be called by the fan in the same way that she does. All right. Uh, so apologies. Don't. Apologies, so, Chris. Oh, God, this is the first one after you did Guilty Feminist as well, isn't it? So all the Guilty Feminist <laughs> lessons are going to be coming here. <laughs> oh, dear. Fan keeps me awake, particularly if I become aware of it and have been asleep. I wear earplugs to keep me asleep. Suffice to say that the outcome of the discussion is that I will get better earplugs. I'm currently trying out loop earrings. So far, quite good, but open suggestions on better alternatives. That's tricky, isn't it? One yeah. person needs a fan, one person... I mean, the solution is get a better fan, isn't it? It depends how sensitive his hearing is, because there's no, there's no fan that makes no noise. You could no. probably find a fan that makes less noise, but there's no fan that would make no noise at all. There are fans that make a constant noise, though, aren't there, that don't have... Yeah. Oscillate in that way. Um, I have not tried the loop earplugs. Have you seen these, Joe? Uh, I've seen them online. You're the first person I've heard that says they've used them, uh, Chris. As far as better earplugs, I have no suggestions. But if any of our listeners have any suggestions for good earplugs, please write in. Or leave a comment on our social medias. I, I think there's, I think there are other ways to cool down as well as a fan. I mean, if uh, I'm, if Chris is in the UK, winter's coming. The fan's not going to be, even even someone who's menopausal isn't going to want a fan soon, are they? To have a window. Yeah, yeah, you can, yeah. You could open a window. You could, but it will. Yeah, still, still. It it, it or or. I mean, if she's having hot flashes and stuff, I don't think it matters that winter's coming. When you're when you get those, it oh, doesn't matter way, what do the temperature is. You're hot, right? From what I hear. Uh, one one thing I would say is this is um, the exact amount of usage of the word oscillation that I want from an email. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about Neil. What what's my target audience? Uh, who do I want to bring to my comedy? It's people that can write an email with the word oscillation. I think four times in the email. <laughs> Oh, God. But, um, guys, sign up for the Patreon if you aren't already. Thank you for those of you who are there. Thank we you. will be giving away Shaparak's books there. And um, thanks for listening to the episode. Yes, thank you. And we'll see you in two weeks' time. Bye. Bye. Bye.